0: This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of Musician, Design, and Live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark, as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business.
1: Now, let's buzz. Hello, and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? Good, sir. Fantastic. Also, Hugh Syme. Good to see you, Hugh. Good to see you, as always, Andrew. Today, we were welcomed by Phil Eheart from Kansas. Uh, Really excited to have drummer, founder, and longtime band manager, Phil Eheart, with us. Wow. Thank you. He has a legendary career spanning nearly five decades. Kansas has firmly established itself as one of America's iconic classic rock bands. This garage band from Topeka, Kansas, released their debut album in 1974 and have gone on to sell more than 30 million albums worldwide. Composing a catalog that includes 16 studio albums, five live albums, Kansas has produced eight gold albums, three sextuple platinum albums, one platinum live album, One quadruple platinum single, Carry On, Wayward Son, and another triple platinum single, Dust in the Wind. That's a lot of numbers and platinums. A lot of platinums. The summer of 2020 marked the release of The Absence of Presence, which is a great record. I've listened to it a couple times the last few weeks. Kansas's 16th studio album, which debuted at number 10 on Billboard's Top Current Albums chart. And just recently, the band released another live record, Point of No Return Live and Beyond. So please welcome to the music buzz, Phil Ehart. Welcome,
2: Phil. Thank, thank you all. Thanks for, for having me. I appreciate it. It's always a treat to have another drummer to talk to here on Music Buzz. and uh, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to talk about the art of Phil Ehart, if I could. To these ears, you were the engine behind the greatest prog rock band to emerge from this country in the 1970s, Kansas. The first record that you guys came out with kind of set the precedent for the Kansas sound. To me, it kind of reminded me, because I was listening to all kinds of music, kind of like Mahavishnu Orchestra with with boogie band Swagger. Like the first tune, can I Tell You, with that furious violin and organ and backwards guitar, here was some progressive rock that remained commercial and accessible, which nobody had done over here yet. And uh, bringing it all back from that first record is a great example, I think, of your solid as a rock playing and your groove first sensibilities, which is an important thing for a drummer to have. And you've you had it in spades right there off the uh, right off the bat. Thank you, thank you. Your second record, "Song from America," took that formula even further. I thought uh, down the road, "Killer Fast Shuffle." I love the way you approach the when you guys have group licks, just the right amount of motion from you with your kick drum kind of leading the way on that stuff. Incredibly tight. Um, anybody who's Surely everybody that would be listening to this Has heard these songs But if not, go back and check out these specific performances I'm talking about that Phil did here And Song from America, what can you say? A classic It's got that great, that backwards beat at the top da 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 boom With the kick on four I mean, that's just as cool as you can get It's very symphonic A great rolling kind of groove It's tasteful you embrace technique and feel equally on that and everything else that I've ever heard you play. You don't ever appear showy for showiness sake. It's like for always for the sake of the song. And that's what I've always felt about your playing. Other classic performances that you've done, you know, the Prog Masterpieces, Carry On My Wayward Son, Point of No Return. You guys got a little more straight ahead in the early 80s. Play the game tonight. Fight Fire with Fire, great examples of you just laying it down, playing the right stuff. And then Silhouettes in Disguise, you kind of, you guys kind of came back with a little bit of more of a return to the more furious kind of a, an arrangement, which was fabulous. And as Andy was saying, I just discovered your 2020 record in the last couple of days. And, man, the title cut, The Absence of Presence, is a classic, classic Kansas tune. Killer drum track, killer drum sounds also. Um and Throwing Mountains man I'm telling you what I really loved that it was, it blew me away actually a band is only as good as its drummer and Philly e. Hart is world class that all being said can you you took up drums I read when you were in grade school and as it did I but as a youngster you lived all over the world cuz your dad was in the air force can you tell us how you were somehow able to continue Drumming and, and have that interest in music with that nomadic lifestyle, and how eventually you got back stateside and met Kerry Livgren and went on to form Kansas.
3: First of all, thank you for your kind words about my drumming. I, I appreciate it. You're very welcome, man. Uh, especially from another Groove drummer. Master. <laughs> especially from another drummer. I appreciate that. But um, yeah, you know, it, it's um, growing up as I did all over the world, I, I really. Developed the ability to play the drums as as limited as it was, just out of boredom. You know, I mean, uh, to be living in the Philippines or living in Japan or you know in the in in Montana while my dad is putting missiles in the ground and stuff like that. You know, it uh, one has a lot of time uh, because of uh, where I am and where I was living and. And so I just concentrated on teaching myself. And, and you always had a drum set? Well, never a drum set. No, I never had oh, a just drum a snare set. Drum. Yeah, eventually, when I, we got back, uh, moved back to Kansas and things, I eventually got a drum set. But most of the time, I was just teaching myself on a book, on a pillow. Uh, I eventually got a snare drum type of thing but it was always just uh listening more than anything listening how what Ringo was doing you know and 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 you you know what was going on with Ian Pace and Deep Purple and just listening to stuff and and then uh, to try to translate that out of the radio onto this drum or book that I had and these things that kind of look like drumsticks anyway and just taught myself and that's I know that's not real, uh, you know, really uh, flashy way of how I learned drums, you know, but it, it's all it's all that I had, and I just I taught myself, and I know my drumming is limited because of that. But I think in other ways, I uh, <laughs> probably developed a style that I have that I probably wouldn't have if I would have followed the tr- traditional way. So it's a bit of, it's a bit of a trade off, you know. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. uh, I wish I could have taken lessons. I wish that at the time I was teaching myself rudiments and learning how to read. But when you're in certain places where I was by myself, you just did the best you could. So I've never complained or looked backwards. I've been very fortunate. And uh, happy to be. <laughs>
4: I've heard some good sounding phone books in my day. There you go. Um, yeah. Or Quake,
3: Quaker boxes.
2: That does have a nice yeah. sound. They have a great sound, yeah. But no, man, I mean, I would have never guessed any of that. Or, in, you know, drummers can come from any kind of a sure, background sure. and all kinds of different stuff. But, boy, you sure aren't hurting for not taking any laps. <laughs> That's for sure.
3: Well, thank you.
2: When did you live in the UK?
3: Uh, that would have been, I think, about 1970. Yeah, I, I moved there. I sold the band school bus. The band had broken up. This wasn't Kansas or anything. It was um, and I sold the bus and took the money and took my drums and went to London, not knowing a soul. Because my dad asked me, Well, who's gonna meet you there? And I said, Well, no one. And he said, Well, like, well, do, do you know any band guys? I said, No. He goes, wait a minute, sit down for a second. He said, You're going to London, England at 19, 20 years old, and you don't know anybody? And I said, yeah and no i am going and no i don't know anybody so i did and and
4: uh neil from rush did something similar to that he didn't have i'm aware yeah <laughs> yeah yes. yeah man. that took some balls <laughs> so you caught the tail end of the british invasion i guess i guess from
2: there it would be the export but yeah you caught the tail end of that yes did you did you find any work there did you find some guys to well with?
3: you know I, I had a three to four month visa Um, That would allow me to stay there until I needed to find employment of some sort. And I I, uh, really didn't get to play with too many people. I got to play with some. But most of the phone calls that I got wanted me as an American. In other words, to play country or to play Uh. jazz uh, or to play country western or blues. You know, anything that really came stateside. Well, (laughs) okay, but that really wasn't, you know, my interest and uh and and so it was kind of slim pickings and 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 I think it was for the best because when I came back is when I put Kansas together, the first yeah. Kansas. So I, I think, you know, I kinda of went over there. I was living in a flat by myself and uh and each night the power ran out because you had to have money to slug the electricity meter and it would run out, so I'd just sit there in the dark. <laughs> And go okay. My dad gave me a transistor radio, and Elton John was just coming on, coming on big at that time. And I remember listening to him a lot and stuff. But it was, yeah, it's just part of a of my life, you know. It's just things that happen and things that don't happen for a reason, also.
2: Sure, growing experience for sure.
3: Yeah,
1: I read you lived in New Orleans for a little bit, and yes, I did. Something about uh, Jim Morrison or something uh, jumped up on stage with you one night. Is that is that story true? If so, can you tell us that story?
3: Oh, okay. Well, uh, yes, I was uh, in a band out of Topeka. It would have been about 1969, and that was at the time that Woodstock and all this. us and, and the band I was in, we went to New Orleans and played in the French Quarter. Uh, and I played 89 nights out of 90 nights. And we were booked. Wow. I played four hours every night. It was a cover band, but we would sneak in originals every once in a while. And And one night we were on break. And the club owner came over to us and just said, uh, you guys see the guy over there at the bar? We looked over and he said, that's Jim Morrison. And he wants to come over and talk to you guys. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm 19 years old, you know, so Light My Fire was, you know, fairly you know, incredible song at that time. And so he came over and sat down with us. He had his beard near this was post Miami when he was growing out right. everything, and uh, wanted to know if if uh, we would play Light My Fire, which we had played earlier, and he wanted to read some poetry in the middle of Light My Fire while we just rocked back and forth on the chords in the middle. So we go up on the stage and I'm about four feet from Jim Morrison. I'm just going, God, last year I was in high school. You know? <laughs> yeah. now, I'm, now I'm, you know, four feet from Jim Morrison. So we start the song, we get in the middle. And he takes out a piece of paper and starts reading po- poetry from it, and it was really cool. There was, it was a Sunday night and probably about twenty people in there. And he turned around and read his poetry to us, and kind of gave us a thumbs up. Walked off the front of the stage, walked out front of the club, out into uh, into the French Quarter, and that was uh, that was it. Oh, that was wow, something that was. Uh, and then to come back later, and and we played with the doors. Uh, The Doors came to New Orleans and and uh, Jim requested that we open for them. So we did. Oh, man. Yeah. And we were the. we actually came out on stage with them for their encore. And as it turned out, Jim uh, died after that. And so we actually played the last song with The Doors the Doors ever played.
2: Really? Wow. Yeah. Holy, What Harry, a I story. Yeah, I remember hearing his the, the, was it a place called The Warehouse? It was The
3: Warehouse, yeah, which we had played yeah. there because we were in New Orleans and we wow. played there a bunch uh, with a lot of bands. We were also the first band to play there because we went down there and tried out their PA system for them, which sucked. And they had uh it was a Seaberg PA system. You know, remember Seaberg jukeboxes? They had those yeah. speakers and stuff. Well, they had been kind of talked into buying all these Seaburg, this PA system. And so we had to tell the guy, look, you know, they had Pink Floyd coming in, they had Fleetwood Mac coming in. oh my They God. had the dead, they had all kinds of these bands and this was the PA they had. So I said, dude, you better scramble and get a PA yeah. system because you're gonna need, and they did. And and it was, uh, it was something that we were the first fan to play the warehouse and the last fan
2: to play with wow. the doors. Anyway, I've got a question for you. If you played 90 shows or whatever in a row or 89 mm-hmm. now it, that was, had to have been a good getting your chops together. Exactly. Right? That's, you playing, the, that's where you got your chops together, right?
3: And, and every day we'd go down and work on writing songs. So we'd go down during the day and, and the, the Coke machine would still be on and we'd grab a candy bar in the bar and drink Coke and eat candy. And, and practice all afternoon and then played from 10 to 2 that night every night so yes that's where you developed your abilities to if nothing else you de- you developed your dexterity and your ability to play gigs that long but you, right. you endurance too yeah youth yeah. had a lot to do with that so yeah it, it was uh it was an incredible time uh, to be a musician and to be out in the world doing that it was uh, things i look back now and kind of took for granted back then that people like Jim Morrison were wandering around the French quarter, you know, <laughs> <That's> pretty, <laughs> right. pretty
2: cool. Well, even, even having a band that would have a place to go play like that. Yes. Every night, very, you don't even have, there's those situations aren't even here anymore. No people. And that's how people get their chops together. And how would you do it now? Practice in your basement, you know, you're right. Yeah. Well, what's the name of that so.
1: band that, uh, that played with the doors, Phil, that you ran? Uh,
3: that was Kansas. Oh, that was Kansas. Yes. That oh, okay. was the very okay. first incarnation of Kansas. And we had a sax player and stuff like that. Uh, Just myself, Dave Hope and Carrie Livgren came out of that version of Kansas to go into the first, you know, Kansas that was signed to Don Kirshner and recorded. Mm -hmm.
1: So you guys were going by Kansas at that time? We were.
2: We were. Okay. yeah. Okay. Wow. That's so cool. Wow. So that was 1970, uh-huh. right? Or, yeah. So then the first record came out in '74. What was the journey you guys took in, in that period of time?
3: <laughs> well, most of it, the journey was taken in a school bus. Uh, you know, out across the state of Kansas a thousand times, playing all over the place. But you know, Kansas, uh, because of our our arrangements and our time signatures and stuff, it it really really wasn't easy for us to find a lot of work in the Midwest, whether it's playing fraternity parties or proms or rodeos or you know whatever we were playing. Uh, we weren't real popular because you know <laughs> go figure. Um, it was just you know we, we had our own sound. we were a terrible copy band. We were the worst copy band you've ever but we could play Kansas music really well mm, you know that, sure. that was our forte and and not every college prom, or our high school prom wanted to hear a, a slow song in nine, eight, you know, that wasn't something that they were, that they were looking for, looking for. <laughs> so, you know, that, always, that, that makes for great, that makes for great stories right now, but boy, the fraternity parties, you know, when we broke into something in five, four, they were like, they had to be careful. They didn't injure themselves trying to dance to us. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. It was so crazy, but, uh, but we, we did. Okay. We survived.
1: Now, it's been you know, pretty well reported over the years in, in relation to you guys at touring with Queen 74, um, I think it was. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience
3: um, touring with them? Well, <laughs> we were in Topeka at the time and, and our booking agent notified us that we would, because uh, we, had, we had an album out and uh, that we would be touring with the band Queen. So we all kind of went okay, Queen. So we all went down to the local record store and got their record to see what they lit. And it was during sheer heart attack, which I think was their second and third record. And um, they just looked incredibly British, and like, wow, this is this is going to be really cool. And it was. I mean, it it was just one of the most awesome experiences to get to play with a band like that. Hey, that you're not super familiar with. And, and, and they were very different from us just in the way they looked, the way they dressed, but they were just uh, great guys, an incredible band. And we got to play with them. And we we played our set each night and then we'd go stand, stand on the side of the stage and watch them. And as you said earlier, you know, it's a place where you learn, you know, how to play the drums and how to, you know, your chops and stuff. Hanging with a band like Queen is where you learn how to, how to pace a set, how to put a set list, sure. together? how to work the crowd, how to engage the crowd and when not to engage the crowd, you know? And, and, and so we would, it, it was just going to, you know, rock college one Oh one with these guys. Cause, uh, and, and they liked sure. us. I mean, for some reason, we're not quite sure why, but they really, I remember Brian May was the first one to come in our dressing room and, uh, and then eventually got to meet all the other guys. And, and to this day, to this day, you know, they're they're, uh, they're friends. Brian May, I consider a friend. You know, he did he was in our documentary, and, and uh, while I was out in Vegas shooting Brian for the documentary, I also uh, saw Roger Taylor out there and stuff. And they they've all remained, you know, just good guys, good good band That's guys. Awesome. You know, very fortunate.
1: Very cool. One thing I was looking at, this, I read the, this morning, because I was I always like to see what songs, when we're talking to somebody, I wonder what songs they wrote. And I had forgotten about that. And so I looked it up with you and it said something like, hey, I didn't write a lot of songs, but he co-wrote Point of No Return and Play the Game Tonight. I was like, well, that's not too bad. Can you tell us a little bit about writing those
3: two songs? Just kind of, well, you know, <laughs> I didn't I didn't have much to do with actually writing the songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Point of No Return, uh, Steve used the title that I came up with I came up with the title of the album, Point of No Return, and then discussed it with Peter Lloyd, who was the artist for that album. And so we had a title and the album cover when Steve wrote Point of No Return. So my credit in there is strictly just from coming up with the title of Point of No Return oh, okay. that he used. And, you know, I thought that was very nice that he included me. But it, it is, you know, part of the chorus and stuff like that. And it did sure. somewhat inspire the lyrics about these guys being on a ship and stuff like that, but I he didn't have to. And I, I appreciated him doing that. And that was, and play the game the night was, Oh God, that's an outside song that was written by some other guys. We really, it was, it had another title and we changed the title and we worked on it. Me and Carrie and I think Elefante and a few, we worked on the, the lyrics together because it had to be recorded the next next day it was one of the things we've got to cut the song record it get the album get the lyrics ready to go because we got to get this album turned in so we did and and there's a number of us that are included on writing that song for all i know i threw out a couple phrases or words or something like
2: that but sure that's still part of the deal it, it's part
3: yeah. of the deal it was a group effort and i think that's what we were trying to get across to everybody Awesome. You you could have totally just lied to us and
1: owned it and said, oh yeah, I wrote those songs. Well, I was thinking about it
2: (laughs) (laughs) and I just let them guys put their names on there too. They owe it all to
1: me. When we first got on, we were already talking about album artwork a little bit. Uh I'm going to let Hugh take the reins from here and start talking artwork.
3: Yeah.
4: It's always gratifying to an art director to see a band that dares to deviate from any norms. You guys have been Dolly esque steampunk renaissance even even cover that has kind of a medieval feeling like left overture um Mm -hmm. and i love your titles i love the the whimsy and the punning and the irony that some of your titles have the the intelligence of absence of presence and and the play on words you know like all was never the same um one of my favorite phrases is like i always say sometime Mm -hmm. you know somewhere to else there's a lot of thought that goes into that but I'm really intrigued with, and I think I was inspired in my own career by the fact that, that there were bands that didn't live with any sort of sense of template. You know, um, yes, you had a logo. There's that. You had a brand. Um, which, yes. Which is not, I mean, it's a very, it's, what I like about your logo is it's nice and discreet. It's got a, a recognizability, but it doesn't overwhelm the covers like, a, like an Aerosmith or, you know, a bigger logo does, or a Chicago, for example. But, yeah. Um, yeah you you've, you've worked with some great people i remember when song for america came out and i saw the airbrushed claw from uh peter lloyd i thought "Oh, that's that's beautiful that's nice and dark and and mm. classy and you know and slick yeah um but so 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 often is your music's very tight and com- complex and I, I i hesitate to use the word slick because that has a derogatory sense but your music was extraordinarily well-structured, you know, and, and rehearsed and played, you know. But, yeah, you had Peter Lloyd, you had uh, Storm, you know, you had some really good people. I'm curious to know the point person in your band who who liaised with the visual aspect of the, of the projects. Was that you predominantly?
3: Yes, that was me.
4: Good for you. Yeah, man, well, congratulations on those choices. And, and, and like I say, daring to be different because I think that's, that was kind of rare in a lot of a lot of bands you know you had a lot of variety and yet a lot of consistency in the way things, you know appealed but yeah um were you were you the driving force or were you the one that would get the comp from the artist and then say yes i like that or did you know you wanted a medieval feel
3: well that's a good question i mean it was different project by project yeah okay i mean it's it, i was I was always the liaison guy. I was always the guy in the band that either had come up with a, with a uh, title mm-hmm. uh, or had uh, was in touch with an artist that I liked or both mm-hmm. or the, the record company would call sometimes with some ideas, but it always ran through me. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually I was the first guy to get done in the studio, you know, lay down the drum tracks. Okay, I'm done. So then I would dive into the, into the cover art so and, and I was also very fortunate to have a band that supported me I, I can't really stress that enough that these guys you know they're very talented guys too and and the amount of stuff they just pushed across the table you know okay Phil will you take care of it and of course I would come back to them of course and and say look I, I found this I found this artwork by by Norman Rockwell and it's called the Charwoman, and it's these two women sitting in a theater after a performance, and their job is to clean up, is to clean up the theater. And this artwork is perfect. Right. They're holding, they're holding a a playbill, you know, from the play that that just occurred in the theater. And what if we took that playbill out of there and put in a Kansas program? And so what it is, these right. are the ladies that are cleaning up after the Kansas concert, which we used for. Two for the show, which is our multi-platinum live Mm -hmm. album. Well, that's kind of a far-fetched cover. but So I had to go to the art director, like yourself, and say, look, we can't use this painting, obviously. You have to recreate it. Mm -hmm. He's going, what? And I said, his name was Tom Brennan. Brilliant, guy." And, And I said, yeah, you have to rebuild this. So he had to go find the theater, and he got the one cleanup woman ready to go. And he couldn't find the other one. He said, I have gone to Central. This was in L.A. He said, I've gone to Central Casting. I cannot find this lady. Then about two weeks later, he called me. He said, I found the lady. I said, who is it? He goes, my mom. I said, what? He (laughs) said, yeah, my mom. She was over for dinner. And I kind of started looking at her from different angles and imagined her hair in a bun. and I thought, mom, you're the person. She goes, what are you talking about? So his mom ended up on the the cover. But uh, we actually won an award from the Rockwell Foundation for uh, they give out rewards for people that recreate their covers. And we won an award for that. Not that that anybody knows about it or cares, but, but it was, it was cool. It was cool that we did that. And all our covers, I mean, Storm Thorgerson, Oh God, rest his soul. You know, he was the, he was the hypnosis guy, wasn't he? Or I'm trying to think Storm was, you know, he did, Oh, he did a lot of the uh, uh, Pink Floyd stuff, the burning man he did in the, in the spirit of things. And so we got to work with such, I got to work with such incredibly well-known and talented people. uh, And and it was something that they would take my ideas and make me look really good, you know? So I'm not just coming up with an idea all the time. Doesn't mean it's going to be a great song. Somebody has to write the song.
4: Did you ever trust an art director um, with, I always find a title inspiring, a great title, which you had no lack of as a band. You had lovely titles. Um, Thank you. Thank you. My oldest and dearest client and friends are Rush, and Neil never failed to come up with a great title. And I find that to be the best springboard for any concept. Did you ever let the art director run with it, or did you always have insights and concepts that you wanted them to consider before they
3: start work? Great question. Very good question. It was... Only one time. And it was when we were doing two albums in one year, Song for America and Mask. Right. And it was the kind of thing that we just, we just didn't have time. We just literally did not have time. And I remember Carrie and I roomed together and I said, man, what are we going to do? He said, well, I've, I've got a title. And I said, OK, great. And he said, I, I like the title Mask. And I said, OK, cool. We, we had no time. It's not like, well, I've got 20 titles. Well, I've got 20. He had one. Go with it. You know, so we sent it to, I guess it was CBS at the time. And uh, they came back with that Arsene 16th century fish face thing that became our cover. Which was, lo- I thought it was lovely. I thought it was a great cover. Oh, it was yeah, incredible. That's a cool,
2: that's a cool oh, cover. It oh, yeah. was
3: incredible. But, but, yes. So, you know, we thought, well, you guys got to go with it because... We're playing with Queen, and then we're playing with Bad Company, and then we're playing with... And then, you know, we were just on the road continuously.
4: Did you have to pay the Archimbaldo family from the 15th century, or...?
3: Well, I didn't.
4: <laughs> I don't think anyone did. Well, I,
3: well the, the writers probably did. They probably cross-collateralized. Yeah. You know, took it out of their writers' role. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. But, yeah, it's it's something that... Uh, yeah, they took care of it, and the cover came out. Yeah.
4: But that's what I'm saying. That's, I mean, that's tilting the mirror much further away from the center. You know, your fans were kept guessing. And if if you're going to call yourself a prog band, take it to the limit, you know. And I think you guys
3: did that beautifully. Well, you got to remember when we started, the word prog wasn't even around. No, I know, but... That's true. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, it was just something we... Our musical tastes were everything from Deep Purple to Frank Zappa to Chicago to Santana to the Isley Brothers to Ike and Tina Turner. I mean, our band had so many likes and so many different styles of uh, I remember one of our favorite albums was uh, Edgar Winter in that solo album. That very first one, he came out, um, uh, you know, the jazz album that he did. We played the grooves off that thing. We were just constantly listening to all kinds of steps. So when it came time either whether it was a band logo or the cover all those things were a part of of our psyche and growing up in a town of hundred thousand people you know it's it's uh it's all in there it's all in there
4: it certainly is but I, I say i think the word prog kind of comes out of um anything that's sort of a melding of classical styles you know sure that, it does now yeah yeah and, and the moment you the moment you step out of four four you're also
2: Dub. Which you guys yeah. did on the first song, on the first yeah. record. You know. <laughs> Wonderfully, by the way. Oh, well, thanks. Yes. Well, we were very fortunate
3: because of the music of the band. Yeah. The, the, the music that the, was right. being written by Kerry Lidgren and Steve Walsh and, and, and Robbie's violin, uh, I mean, lent such an oddity to guys that wore jeans, T-shirts, and overalls. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just, yeah. it just, I mean, people that... Would review our, our music hated us because they couldn't quite put us put us where where they felt comfortable. Yeah, which was that's great. We love to make people feel uncomfortable. You know, it's the kind of thing that you know to make them think. Yeah. And Kansas music, you know, and on our documentary, put a disclaimer at the end that the Surgeon General warns dancing to Kansas music may be hazardous to your health. Yeah. You <laughs> <know>. and,
4: <laughs> Having said that, your music was extraordinarily accessible too. you. I I don't, I don't mean pop, but that was the beauty of it. Yeah.
2: The way you was, you guys were able to do that. Yes.
3: We were very, very fortunate to have uh, the writers Mm -hmm. and the musicians that we had. It it was once in a lifetime, something like that comes along. And we were very fortunate and that Don Kirshner heard us and and liked us. The guy that put the monkeys together and the Archies. Heard Kansas right. and said, those are the guys I want to sign. Nice. So you, you put all that together. It's, it's
2: I didn't realize that. The, what a story that yeah. is. Yeah. Wow. Well, that shows you the accessibility uh, as well as the, yeah. you know.
1: I remember Carry On is one of the top five most played songs on classic rock radio. Top
3: five. Yeah, every year. Yeah. Every yeah. year.
2: <laughs> I believe it. I mean, I hear it all the time. So I, I, I mean, do, too. I hear it in my gym at, at least like twice a week. Yeah. Yep. I get
3: to hear it every night we play. But anyway. <laughs>
2: Well, I was going to ask you, but yeah. you know what? what? How do you feel about that? Still still fun to play the those classics, right? Yeah, very much so.
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's Carry On Wayward Son, because it almost didn't make it on the album. Kerry wrote it the night we were breaking down our gear and heading to the studio. Uh, and he said to me, he had a, a song he wanted to play for us. So we got down to the studio. He played it for us. We cut it that day. We cut, at least I, wow. cut, I cut my track. And I think Dave cut his bass and some of that, in, in the in the day that we learned it, mm. so I'm trying to come up, I'm trying to come up with this stuff, knowing that this is going to probably be a pretty well known song, and uh, I, I'm very proud of what we did, you know. In that, record. that's incredible, yeah. And uh, but it yeah. almost didn't make it on. He, Kerry, I could have said to him, "Well, Carrie, we've got the album, let's put it on the next album." But I said, I said "Well, no, that, if you're very excited. Let's take a listen." As soon as we heard it, boy, it was. Uh,
4: This was uh, being a huge Beatle fan myself. I'm all intrigued with, and I marvel at how some of their stuff was so immediately created and recorded. You know. Yes.
2: Yeah.
3: Yes. Yeah. Not everything. Not everything was. Some of the stuff took.
2: There's something to be said for that, though. Sometimes. Yeah. It's just so fresh that you just you're. It's all instinct. I didn't have. I didn't have a chance to overthink it.
3: You know right. the 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 beginning. Don't you cry? No, boom, 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 blah. Boom, boom, blah. Yeah, it was
2: every drummer in the world knows yes, that.
3: But that wasn't Killer. That wasn't supposed to be there. It was it, since we didn't have editing. You know, you couldn't splice and all that kind of stuff. That was put right. in to be a marker, so I could come back later and overdub. Don't you cry? No, put it back, back, do 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 Ba-da-da, that's what I something like that, you know?
2: Yeah, I'm well, glad as, you as, didn't. As we, yeah, I
3: would have ruined it, is what I would overthink. Yeah. overthinked. Yep. But as we continued right. to record the song, the guys were going, I kind of like that beginning. And I'm going, I kind of like it too. Well, as soon as we got it out in front of people, jum, 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 jum. I mean, I mean... Oh whole, man, that's a
2: signature, that's yeah, the signature thing right yeah, there. that's my signature lick. From, yeah. Yeah. That's like your guys' We Will Rock yeah. is that little lick right yeah. there. So it yeah. was...
3: I agree. A lot of things can happen when there's no pressure, you know, you're just comes right off the top of your head, you know, it's can be pretty cool. Yeah. So
1: Phil, we, we always like to talk about live stuff and, you know, obviously you're your band, but so as a fan, what was, what was some of the first shows that you went to as a fan? Do you remember what those shows were like early on that you went to? Oh, heck yeah.
3: I remember the ones that, uh, one that just completely blew me out of the, the audit, the smaller auditorium it was I can Tina Turner oh yeah and wow. mean, this oh, is man. when they you know Rocky Mount Ma- you know the whole the whole thing just uh, uh, just incredible oh, yeah. and um, what was I the remember uh,
1: I worked on some Tina Turner shows I think it was maybe like when she like two thousand one yeah I this was like,
3: this was back in the this was back in the
2: sixties and seventies. Sure. So, you know, showing my age, but that's that real fast version of proud Mary. Mary. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: He opened up for Lionel Richie and and he's great. But when he came out, I almost felt sorry for him. I'm like, man, I would not want to follow Tina Turner,
2: you know? Yeah. She's a force of nature, even. But yeah, shows like that uh,
3: when Deep Purple was over in the United States following them, one of the most butt kicking bands ever was the original Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, and they, played, they
2: Oh yeah, with Peter Green. Yeah,
3: yeah, they played. Yeah. They played down at the warehouse down in New Orleans, and we'd get to go see those shows. Another band wow. that uh, was the widest band I've ever heard was the original Almond Brothers. Mm. You know, and it was oh, just yeah. the sound that just rolled with those two drummers, and it was just uh, the, the stuff that we heard back then was just uh, plus a lot of the stuff that we got to we got to play with. I mean, playing with Bad Company when they were out with. Uh, running with the pack we got to open for that tour I'm watching them every night and and uh and having rush open for us you know that, that was something i wasn't you know we weren't we kind of it came out a little bit after we did and uh, they were opening for us and i remember sitting in my in the dressing room warming up on my drum pad and rich our guitar player walked up to me and he goes um have you seen this drummer <laughs> and i go uh no should i he said I think you ought to check this guy out. Okay, So Neil, Neil and I became uh, acquaintances. You know, we both kind of were coming up at the same time. And we talked about a lot of different stuff. And uh, uh, I, I, I don't want people to think we were like best friends. We, we, we were not. We were on tour together. And we would spend time in the dressing rooms talking and stuff. And we were sure we were buds. You know, but uh, once they once they took off, and once we took off, uh, we we would go to their shows every once in a while. They would come to ours. We played CNE up in uh, Toronto, and the three of them came and stuff. But you know, they kind of went their way, and we went our way, and and uh, but we were always uh, in awe of them, and mm-hmm. you know, and how good they were, and, and good and good guys. They were good
4: yeah, they're guys. really good guys. I agree. And to spend time with the militantly private Neil Peart. Was a treat. Yeah, I agree with do what that. do I, what now to spend time with the militantly private Neil Peart was truly a treat oh yeah in
3: my oh life. yeah it, it, well see I, he was he was never that way to me though so oh he no no he, normally he just coming out no and and he hadn't really reached you know the drum god status yet he was just people were just starting yeah like myself yeah just just starting to see him and listen to him, and it was it was a great a great time to be there it really was well I'm glad you had that. Yeah. Rest his soul, by the way. Yeah, man. Rest his Yes. Soul.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about your influences as a drummer. You, we've touched on that a little bit. Yeah. When you mentioned Ian Pace a little bit ago, that, that was somebody that I would say I can hear a little of that in your playing. Well, I, that's a that's a.
3: <laughs> it's extremely flattering. <laughs> uh, uh, that guy is, a, was always my biggest. Inf- you know, it was, it was the same time Bonham. You know, Bonham was out. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, and, oh yeah. And and uh Ian Pace was my guy cuz I was such a huge Deep Purple fan. And uh, Speed King and all those songs, you know. That's yeah, Single Stroke Roll. Oh, he was the best. I mean, he was the king of singles. The Machine
2: Head, what's oh. the first song on Machine Head to uh um, Highway Star. Highway Star, yeah. Dunes. That 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 that. No, he was. Hell, yeah. He, and then
3: I finally got to see him live and uh, we were on the road and saw him and and it was really uh And of course, you know, Steve Morse I uh, was in our band for a couple albums and then Steve joined.
2: Oh, that's right. And, from, uh, from the Drags, so and then he yeah. joined those. And he was, he guys. played
3: in Kansas for a couple of years, which was uh, awesome. That's right. And then he went and joined B. purple. So he always tells me, okay, you just got to, I'll take you back and introduce you to Ian. You know, anytime they see, you know, we can go meet him. And yeah. It's just never happened, you know? So maybe someday.
2: I, guess, maybe. I met him at the, checking out of the sunset marquee in, in, uh, in hollywood one time we uh, were checking the bellicamp band was checking out and those guys were checking out uh, okay they were i see nice. yeah, they were yeah. up. this is probably about 20 years ago or something yeah. like that yeah. but just to be able to just shake his hand and say thanks for all the everything you showed me yeah. man <laughs> you know golly yeah. one of my great teachers right there yeah uh as was for you so yeah what what a player yes very much so well,
1: thanks so much congrats on the on the latest record and the new live record as well so great to connect with you so
3: well, thank you thank, thank you very much for having me i, I really appreciate it and you guys are a pleasure you guys are fun you guys are fun
2: <laughs> hey, well we try to we try to be we try to keep alive well, you, do. you do you do you do like <laughs> i said it's uh, it's great to have a, a a fantastic drummer here to uh be our interviewee so well,
3: I, I i i
1: appreciate it very much thank you awesome thank you so much Phil for joining us we appreciate it okay guys thanks take care thank you take care you too bye bye thanks again to Phil Ehart of Kansas for joining us on this episode of the Music Buzz Podcast it was recorded a few months ago since that time we're saddened to learn of the passing of Robbie Steinhardt formerly of Kansas and just our sincere condolences to Robbie's family and also Kansas and everybody involved with the band thanks for joining us